0: Oh, very appropriate, Stephen. Yes, that's that's the way you start a podcast. (laughs) I'm
1: like, I'm worried about being super professional and Stephen just blows the door. You know, I mean, it's our podcast. I mean. I, I don't play by the rules, just kind of yeah. like the guy we're going to talk about today.
0: I uh, do have to remember that it is our podcast, so I guess people can choose whether they want to listen or not yeah, based no, on mean, our professionalism or lack thereof. Yeah, own.
1: I mean, uh, I pay for it. so uh, Yeah, I guess yeah. that's true.
0: <laughs> I guess that is very true. It's Stephen's brain engine, child. Yeah, it's, I mean,
1: I'm the, I'm the financier, I'm the producer. He's the, the executive producer yeah, yes. and producer. But, you know, it's, it's, you know I, there's no rules for me. I don't give a shit. Um, yeah, that's,
0: I, that's the one thing with podcasting is you can kind of do whatever you want. Yeah, I mean, within you know, reason. But, you know, within I don't reason. want to offend you can't, people as yeah, much you as, can't as like, you know. but like, you know. Commit crimes on here. Sure, like, sure, yeah, here. yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And I'm I mean, going to murder this person while, while it's doing <laughs> yeah, this podcast right now. Yeah,
0: you can't see it. You can only hear it. So is it real? Is it not real? Yeah, you kinda you never, like know. never really know. Orson Welles' broadcast of War of the Worlds where people thought the world was ending. Yeah. People didn't know any better. Um, but transitioning from that let's go into something that oh well, we talked i mean wait, before
1: do, oh we, we got this intro, intro. Do, do we know who do they know who we are the first time well, i hope so because uh, this because i know so. this episode's going to be popular because we're talking about one of the most you know popular directors out there but if you have not come across this podcast before this is the cinema discovery project i it mean it is the cinema discovery i know project. everybody probably talks about us but oh you know, we
0: are all over the world we're, we're pretty popular anywhere. we're like the
1: ebert and robert of the podcast world um you know but uh you know I'm Stephen Billings and yeah. with me I, as always is is the, the Andrew Cabral the yeah, only Andrew me. Cabral he the Andrew Cabral Well yeah. there's so many of
0: us around around yeah. that yeah. I guess I'm just one of many but yeah it's it's it is me I'm here <laughs> 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 like that part <laughs> in the that part <laughs> in the opening of Austin Powers uh spy who shagged me that's, yeah. yeah that's yeah. you over there <laughs> Oh yeah it's you <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But but now we can Transition to something we talked about last time, which is Criterion Spy Number One Thousand. We were waiting and waiting for it to drop last episode, which was two weeks ago, and then they waited. They waited until past Comic Con to do that.
1: Yeah, they waited Um, that that week. We had to go through a whole more another week since this episode That last episode dropped. We had to wait a whole other week till we finally got the news uh, this past week, which is when this will come out about a week after we found out the news. Pretty um, much, yeah. pretty
0: much. So it, it has happened most recently, and what many people guessed, what many people assumed, it is a Godzilla box set of movies, yes. Blu-ray box set. The
1: Showa era.
0: It's the Showa era, which I believe is like every Godzilla produced by Toho. Yeah. Uh, from 1954, the original, I think, all the way to 1975, 76, something around like that, there. Yeah, yeah. Um. So it is basically 20 years or more worth of, um. Godzilla movies. I think it was, It's fifteen
1: films. It is
0: fifteen films. Yeah, and it's, they're all the the Japanese era. Well, I mean, they're all the Japanese productions. It has like we said last time. There's only been three American. Yeah. Uh, Godzilla movies. So all the rest have been Japanese, and it's going to be a massive set. Fifteen movies. Um,
1: Maybe not as big. For not not is, as big as the Bergman set. No, the Bergman set
0: was gigantic. It was twice that size. It really was, and twice the price i think um but the artwork for it is up online it's going to be really colorful really vibrant really interesting looking reminding me a lot of the zadoichi set in terms of just the overall colors the way they're really really pops but obviously much bigger It looks like to be the same design as the bergman set which is you know that kind of gigantic oversized book type packaging really thick cardboard box set um, but it looks like it's coming. It's coming out in October, so it's very, very soon. It's, it's
1: right there, right before the sale. Right uh, before the sale. So, which so leads I, hopefully, to the, you know. yeah, it
0: leads to the question for those of you who collect out there: Are you going to wait for the sale to get it at fifty oh, yeah. percent off? Oh yeah. Or, or are you going to bite the bullet and buy it when it's more expensive? And have you already pre-ordered it? Because well, I
1: think it's already up for pre-order It, it on is, Amazon. but it's like more than the price on Criterion. Like, yeah, it's like 200 it's, and something dollars. It is. It's like 225 on Amazon when it's only 179 on criterion.com.
0: That's kind of crazy. That looks yeah. like like Amazon's selling it for like their the official like regular regular price, the manufacturer's price or something like that. Something, Whatever those yeah. MSRP and all those those anagram things that I, can't I think it'll quite change the closer we get to the time. Oh, it always does. Yeah, it but but does. but
1: I, for you last time I bought the I bought the Bergman set uh, on Amazon and it's I got right. it and I got it right you know got it right away. So um, that is probably what I want to do, but I, I, that price has got to come down first.
0: What's crazy is I yeah. bought it during the sale because Amazon just price matched it at fifty percent off, yeah. and I'm pretty sure it was selling out quick. That Bergman set sold out very quick in-store and on barnesandnoble.com. I expect this to happen, too. Yeah, "Yeah, this this is going to sell out fast. Although, there is some pushback against the set because these Godzilla films are, you know, they are monster movies from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. This isn't high art, Italian cinema, French cinema, American cinema, whatever. So, like, I guess there's pushback against it. You know, those those people who had problems with some other releases in the Criterion Collection, like The Princess Bride um, and stuff like that, where like they're kind of like gatekeepers, like, oh, this movie's not worthy of being in the collection and all those types of people. And I'm like, man, I mean, it's not the first time Criterion has has gone this route when, when it comes to their films. I mean, Armageddon's in the collection. The Rock well, is in the well, collection. Sure, yeah. The but, Blob is in the collection. But I people... Mean,
1: People forget that that the Criterion Collection is not just about, you know, uh, gatekeeping only for for like films that are considered masterpieces. Right, um, it's, it, that's it's not about their it's message. A, it's 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 about you know collecting historic movies that had an impact. You know whether they're good, bad movies have impacts too. You know or you know, oh yeah. But 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 it's not just about like whether the movie's a a ten star movie. It's it's about you know what, if you look at. You know, yeah. that Godzilla movies were, you know, pioneers in, in special effects. You know, what, know that. they're
0: probably the Godzilla character in general is probably is the most well known kaiju of all time. Yeah. I mean, he is the king of the monsters for a reason. He's he's recognizable whether you've seen the movies or not. He, people just know Godzilla. And I think that's culturally important. And the, I mean, Criteria does have a mission statement, I guess, where, you know, it's basically to put out movies that are, you know, culturally important, that are movies that are, you know, maybe um, unseen movies or movies that are um, cult movies, things like that. It, the definition of what they put out has been all over the place. Yeah. They've put out, like, the highest art in, like, Bergman, like we were just talking about, and also put out Michael Bay. I mean, like, the, there's a range there of which they can work in, and I, I can't wait for this set because I'm a big Godzilla fan. I really like the monster movies of that era, and you kind of have to, You know, when you watch those movies, you got to put them in context of when they came out. You got to put them in context of like, like what were the budgets like at that time? What was technology like at that time? It's nothing like it is today.
1: And Toho is a is a very you know, uh, you know important important studio. Yeah,
0: yeah, important Japanese production studio that made a lot of Japanese films. Yeah, not just the Godzilla films. And yeah, it's it's a really important culture, and I think it's a portal into. You know, the kaiju Which, films of that time, because there were so to, many
1: of them. It's important to Japanese culture, too.
0: As well, yeah. yeah I, I mean, I mean like, it's... And Godzilla is a gateway into all of the other monsters, I think. Yeah. I mean, maybe not King Kong. King Kong is kind of his his equal in terms of yeah. recognizability. And then the th- but, I and mean, things like Mothra and Rodan and Ghidorah and et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, and, and the thing about God, the Godzilla movies are, and, and one, some of them are more, uh, I guess you could say, relevant at, at this than others, but, like... The movies are, are are you know allegories for you know nuclear war. They, you know oh, they yeah. have a they have a message. It's not like they're just you know they're not Sharknado where they're just <laughs> they're just stupid monster movies for the sake of seeing them right. fight. You know there there yeah. are there is a little bit of a message. I there. mean some
0: of, yeah some of them are cheesy and dumb. Sure you know yeah I mean, but I mean but typically you know, it's some, got like some, Son of Godzilla. Is, some is some really of it's got
1: typically though there's some they got something they get there's a reason for it. Like it yeah. might be cheesy, but it, like the reason for the 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 new monster or something has something to do with uh, some kind of thing behind it, something right, some kind right. of message. Um, so it's I, I just feel bad for you because you've been buying them up on Blu-ray. And yeah,
0: have... <laughs> uh, luckily for me, I start I I I was started doing it like and the crate. This is gonna be just just a look at just collecting in general. I went to get. Because uh, I want to get all the ones from Kraken released and Kraken releasing released um, Sony Pictures released uh, some other ones, but what happened is recently the Kraken releasing Blu-rays started going like out of print. They started yeah. going from like ten dollars on Amazon to being out of stock. Now, now and we know can why. Only get it from, yeah, <laughs> we can only get it from third place. So people who were selling a ten dollar Blu-ray from a month ago is now fifty, sixty, seventy dollars yeah. on eBay, and I'm like. Oh my goodness! Why did this happen all of a sudden? And they announced the set, and of course those movies are in the set. Yeah. Things like uh, Godzilla vs. Uh, Hidora, Godzilla vs. Gigan, uh, Godzilla vs. Uh, the Smog Monster, uh, or, or Ibera Horror of the Deep. I can't wait to do one. a. Binge.
1: I can't wait to do a binge on all these movies. There, I'm there, binge these what's movies. crazy?
0: There's a continuity. It's a loose continuity, but it's there <laughs> between these movies. Because yeah. I've been watching them in order. I love to watching franchises in order from, like, beginning moving forward. Sometimes there's no continuity at all. Like Sometimes the X-Men, get like retconned. the X-Men franchise. X-Men, <laughs> I mean, their timelines are all, all, all like, ridiculous. The, the one of the worst ones is Highlander because yeah. it makes no goddamn sense. Once you get past the first movie, things just go crazy. But, I mean, like, you see, like, there's a Somewhat of a continuity, like these monsters show up and then they show up again, and then they should and sometimes they partner with Godzilla to fight another one, or sometimes they fight Godzilla. It's a whole big thing where you see kind of this tapestry of monsters. But man, I'm glad that one of those those ones that I missed out on are in this set. So I now I don't have to pay fifty bucks for a ten dollar yeah. Blu Ray. Oh yeah. You know what I mean on eBay or something like that. Granted, um. I like that it's just the Showa era, and it's just like it's that complete first era. Yeah. We're gonna do probably a whole episode on Godzilla, but there's like uh, there's different eras. There's Showa, and Heisei, and then there's a third one, which is like kind of the modern stuff.
1: Yeah. And of course,
0: there's the American stuff, but I like having like all of those in one box set, like a complete block of a franchise yeah. in one set, and that's kind of cool just for collector's sake. But um, yeah, I can't wait. So I guess we can move on to our main topic. Which yeah, let's do it, yeah, so with the coinciding, the release of his newest film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, um, please excuse me because I'm going to say Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I'm probably <laughs> going to say Once Upon a Time in America a few times, Once Upon a Time in the West. In Mexico.
1: Uh, Once Upon a Time in <laughs> Mexico.
0: There's been a lot of those titles with, you know, that sounds the same. I, I, th- I
1: think <laughs> I think because Tarantino is such a film fan. Yeah, he did uh, He wanted it, He wanted one of his films to be a Once Upon a Time movie. Oh yeah, he did. He was and like, got it. God, really, I have so many good movies with Once it, Upon a Time in the title. I want yeah, to have one.
0: <laughs> it plays into the movie very well, especially you know looking at it as a whole. But we'll get to that in the end. But coinciding with the release of his new film, we wanted to take an overall general look at Quentin Tarantino, his filmography, his influences. Or things that have influenced him, you know, because he has been one of probably the most talked about filmmakers of our time pretty yeah. much since he got on the scene. Just doing research, I was telling Steven, there's just so many things written about him. There are so many interviews, so many talks, so many think pieces written, so many articles about him over his entire career that it's, it's, it's over, it's overwhelming
1: yeah. just to get into no, all of that. He's a stuff. filmmaker that very much likes to be in the spotlight. Um I so... don't know if
0: he like what's crazy, he likes to be in it and his and people just devour his films. Oh yeah. Like like just once upon a time in Hollywood, the fervor and the talk about it is unlike the talk and fervor around most films. And his films aren't exactly mainstream these aren't franchise movies. These aren't big tentpole. Um, well, they're you know, not intellectual properties. They're these, not mainstream,
1: but they're but, yeah. they're. but they. I think a lot of it has to do with him as a as a personality. Um, is part of he's a he has made his own brand. Tarantino t- is a brand. It's his name. It's yeah, his name. Yeah.
0: There are few directors today working whose names are so significant that you can recognize them just by their last name yeah like you I mean, don't even need to know their first. i, I would name. say
1: I, th- I would say the only other ones that really stand out to me are uh probably spielberg right. still scorsese still i would even say jj abrams has gotten to a point where he's kind of like a you know you hear jj abrams you know who he is yeah but he's it's done more Star like Wars.
0: his first and last name go together like yeah J. J. Abrams, yeah because it's just jj yeah you know and, what
1: I mean? and, and then of course christopher nolan Yes, yeah,
0: Nolan's a big one, Scorsese, like you said. Um, there aren't few many directors that can just sell their movies sell the based movie. off their no, names.
1: Nolan just made a World War II movie, and it made like $600 million. Yeah, I know. You know?
0: It, it's, it's really <laughs> fan, fascinating. It's, it's kind of interesting how we always talk about, you know, uh, do stars still sell movies which stars sell movies nowadays or is it about the recognition of the property more so than the people who are in it or is it a combination of both is it the filmmaker i mean there's just so many different marketing. it, it, it just really depends
1: i mean it, i mean the i mean obviously guys like tarantino and nolan are proven that it doesn't have to be ip that can make you right. a lot of money um yeah. you know it, 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 you just need to be uh, and, you know, studios need to take more chances, I think. Right. Um, but, and and you
0: know. what is interesting is when it comes to Tarantino, his films, you know, the opposite of Nolan, these aren't gigantic, big action movie Not really, production no. things. No, these movies are smaller i want to say that once upon a time in hollywood maybe one of his more expensive movies because it was a period piece
1: it's um i i I looked at the budget it's 90 million um and uh which i think django is his most expensive movie i think django was like a little over 100 million dollars so but
0: even then in comparison to some other things that's not a lot.
1: oh yeah yeah i mean it's still like a mid-budget movie you know it's considered nowadays a mid 90 million is a mid-budget you know so, because most movies yes. now, most of these big movies are $200 million movies.
0: Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So, in just saying all of that, we're probably just going to go over general stuff that probably things most of you Tarantino fans already well, know. And if you don't know it, yeah. I guess this is a nice refresher. Yeah. It, refresher it is, we'll do a little forward.
1: overview. And at the very end of our kind of overview, we're going to do like a, we'll give our first impressions without spoilers. Uh, for right. for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and then I think you do you want to go into some spoiler territory?
0: I mean, we I mean, depending on time, I guess. Because it um, just it
1: kind of it's kind of tough to talk about certain things without. Well, to be more. honest,
0: I mean, there's things in there that people shouldn't be spoiled about if you understand Tarantino if you understand. There's not really a lot to spoil in the movie, but we'll get to that. Before if, we go if, on, if,
1: that. we'll see where we're at, and we'll see yeah. if you want to go into spoilers.
0: Yeah. So we'll start off with a little. A little biographical backstory about Quentin Tarantino. Not not enough to write a whole biography on him. But he was born in Knoxville, Tennessee in on March twenty seventh, nineteen sixty three. For some reason, he's a
1: Pisces. He's a Pisces like me. Oh, I didn't know you knew astrological (laughs) science.
0: Um but he yeah, so he was born there. His father was an actor and producer, um and uh, Early on in his life, they moved to California, and then I think his parents split up when he was very, very young in the in the mid 1960s. So they moved back to, um, back to the South. I can't remember if it was back to if it was back to Knoxville, or if it was to someplace else. But he's actually named after and this is kind of appropriate. He's named after Quint Asper, who is a character played by Burt Reynolds, Burt Reynolds in yeah. Gunsmoke. Yeah. And that's kind of very interesting, considering that's, like that's, that's... he'd be a super duper, you know, movie TV fanatic. Oh yeah, man. and, and, and you, know you know what I mean.
1: That's part of why I think he wanted him in. You know, he wanted him in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood originally. He did. And, and he did, he, and he, he unfortunately, unfortunately passed, passed away yeah.
0: before they could shoot his scenes. And he was, um, yeah, because his parents divorced, and they moved. He moved back to Knoxville, like I was saying, in 1966. And then they moved back to Los Angeles, I believe, later on, and his mother ended up getting remarried to a musician, I believe, and that is kind of where, you know, in his adolescence is where he kind of found movies, and kind of found the theaters. Um, He actually wrote his first screenplay at 14 years old, (laughs)
1: um,
0: which is really, really interesting. The movie was called Captain Peach Fuzz. Yeah, yes, yes. And the And another, and the Anchovy Bandit, (laughs) which was I the Anchovy Band, I think was a take on, um, um, Smokey and the Bandit. Yeah, yeah, it was a take on that Hal Needham's film from '77. But when he was very, very young, he he started. He saw films that he probably shouldn't have seen because he was (laughs) super young. I guess his mother was very. Uh, open-minded when it came to what he could consume as a child because he saw movies like Carnal Knowledge and Deliverance. And these movies came out in 71, oh. 72. So Burt this, Reynolds again, he was like 10 years old. Burt you know? Reynolds again, huh? Yeah, Burt Reynolds again. And it was just really, really interesting how how that connection is. But like I said, he wrote us for a screenplay at 14. I mean, at 15, he actually dropped out of high school. What is really important to know is that Quentin Tarantino didn't go to film
1: school. Yeah, he's one of several um, well-known. There, there's um, a lot of guys people. from that time that yeah. didn't go to school. Yeah,
0: there's, a, yeah, and I mean, there's so much to say about it. But basically, back then, you had to go to film school. It's not like today where you don't really have to go to film school to learn how to how to make movies. But back then, that's kind of the only place where you could get any like quote unquote. Formal, you know, technical knowledge about yeah, that, how to make that movies.
1: Yeah, a- access to, to cameras a- and... Not,
0: well, yeah, well, access to cameras, access to equipment, I um, mean, uh, to just to learn general structures of things, you know, like how to how to set up, how to, you know, technically shoot a movie, you know, scene setups and yeah. all this kind of technical stuff. Back then, you needed to do it because you also needed it to get to get into the business. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because that's where the recruiting ground was for... Uh, production companies in hollywood and places like that is they would you know the young students coming up would be you know the next generation of filmmakers screenwriters editors production people etc etc it's not like today where there's so many more avenues of education that you can pursue when it comes to learning about how to make movies you know i mean neither steven and i went to film school yet we walk we watch and talk about movies as 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 people who Make them. You know what I mean? Like, we have the verbiage, we have the education, um, you know, we have the education to be able to do that. You know, stuff we just learned on ourselves by just doing what essentially Tarantino did watch movies. (laughs) That's basically what I know Paul Thomas Anderson was the same way. He initially went to film school, didn't like it, dropped out, and just said, I just went and watched movies. That's how I learned how to make movies. And Tarantino was the same way. So, at around 15 years old, he became an usher at a uh at a porn theater <laughs> called the Pussycat Theater. Interesting how interesting how, you know, you, you get this kind of tapestry and combination of certain things where like he's watching these, you know, adult you know, adult oriented films when he's really young. He's working at a an adult theater when he's also in his teenage years as well. And then of course he did what many, many people do in the nineteen eighties is he worked at a video store. And he he just like like consumed so many movies and we would talk about movies he just was a sponge for movie knowledge and if you've ever seen a interview with Quentin Tarantino this guy knows movies like crazy yeah. he is yeah. like a super cinephile sponge of knowledge he and Martin Scorsese are these types of people where they just they just have these catalogs in their brains about movies and they bring up stuff that you've never heard of before movie B movies from the nineteen seventies or nineteen eighties that you that were just driving movies that you've never seen. Well, He's also, yeah. They, they had
1: he had access to things that most people didn't. You know, I mean and you know back then people couldn't just you know not everything, you know, was easily accessible. I mean it was um and you know But what is interesting videos, is that
0: yeah. he grew up during the age of growing accessibility to movies. Uh, He grew up during the VHS age, you know, VHS, Betamax. Like I said, he worked at a video store. Uh, I find it very interesting that the people of his generation who grew up the same time frame as him, you know, born in maybe the 60s or 70s and grew up in the 70s and 80s were part of the, the VHS era. That's where they learned about movies, where they watched movies because movies became more accessible. And we're kind of like the generation after that who, who, where movies have been even more accessible to us. And now, you know, movies are like, you can access a movie instantly.
1: Yeah. Like
0: at any point, any time, if you have an internet connection, you can get almost any movie you want. Whether you want to pay or not want to pay, whether it's streaming or not streaming, you, we can get any movie at any time. But though back then, that kind of stuff was starting to come around. But I also wanted to mention that He's kind of a cinema purist from a certain perspective, where he loves celluloid, uh, thirty-five millimeter prints, sixteen millimeter prints, eight millimeter prints, and onward and onward. Where he probably has a gigantic collection of movies on film that well, yeah, he, he uses he own, and collects. He, own, and he owns, screens.
1: He owns a movie theater in L.A. That... the new,
0: The New Beverly. Yeah, yeah. The New Beverly, which I think he bought around 2010 and it's supposed to exclusively run film prints of movies oh, yeah. i don't know if it was initially like if, if it initially had both and then he got rid of the digital projectors or if it still does both i don't really know too much about it but all i know is that it screens old movies like all the time that's that that's its thing it's a repertory theater that there's a lot of theaters like that but most of them i think now are Digital versus you know actual like 35 millimeter canister prints of movies, you know a lot of them I assume are also from his own personal collection.
1: Oh, I'm sure. I think yeah.
0: Martin Scorsese I think is the same way. He's got he's got film prints and all that kind of stuff. Because typically back then, like we said, even though VHS had come around, before that you could only really get them through film prints. That was that was pretty mm. much about it. So he's got all of that wealth and all of that knowledge, and he kind of. Takes all of that stuff, all of that cinematic history he's got in his head, and he puts it directly into his movies. And it, watching his movies are a good kind of gateway into a lot of things from cinema's past. That's yeah. how I kind of got into all of the things that we've talked about many times on here. Film noir, uh Japanese, you know, samurai, samurai film, yeah. Italian films, um, horror films, all this kind of stuff are all stuff that are put into his movies. And we're going to just briefly go over all of his movies, um, you know, throughout this episode. But just leading up into um, getting to that point, we all know that his technical first movie is Reservoir Dogs. But there was one there was before movie, that. Yeah. There was one before the, that, is that. it
1: Four Rooms?
0: No, no. It was called My Best Friend's. Oh, My Earth Best Dance Friend's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In 1987, but what happened is the final reel of the film was almost completely destroyed in a lab fire uh, during while he was editing it, um, and he wasn't able to finish it. And yeah. I think the only thing I think the screenplay still exists of it, or like the screenplay was later tr- uh, formed the basis for True Romance. Yeah. What is interesting is that he's not only a film director, but he's also a very well. He, uh, well Good screenplay writer. Well yeah, he wrote that. a few screenplays yeah.
1: before he really started, it, and he was also yeah. known for being a punch up writer. Like right. he would he would go and work on other movies and just go and punch up the scripts. I think he'd done a couple he I think he did some work on Armageddon, like dialogue wise. I think it was yes, either that or no, he, it was The Rock. The, was rock. the Rock. It was The Rock.
0: Yeah. Where um, he did Yeah, I but know, he did Natural Born, Born DVD Killers.
1: DVD. He he wrote yeah. that. He wrote True Romance and uh
0: I mean, he's re- he also wrote From Dusk Till Dawn. Dusk Till Dawn. Um, he he, he did, also did... acted
1: in that. Let's yeah, he's forget- actually done
0: a lot of acting. I was going to say,
1: let's not forget, is also an actor, too. He
0: is also an actor. Not, he's not, not a great, great one. No. Not a great one. <laughs> yeah, apparently, I've heard once upon a time, I don't know if this is true, is that he wanted to be an actor um, more so than he wanted to be a, a filmmaker. Um, obviously, he chose the right path in being a writer filmmaker yeah. than being an actor. It's not that he's bad, because sometimes I think he's very good. But I think he's really good in his own work when he's doing his own dialogue and things like that. Um, Because I think he's just having... looks like he's having a lot of fun more than anything else. Sure, yeah. Um, Yeah, he's done... I mean, he wrote uh, two episodes for CSI's, you know, uh, crime scene investigator investigations. Um, He's written a bunch of stuff. He's written... I think he's got... He technically has credit for the From Dusk Till Dawn series. I think he has, like, for writing some episodes there. Uh, but, yeah, he's acted in a bunch of things. I mean, he, he was on an episode of Golden
1: Girls way back when. Yeah. I mean, he was... He played it. He was an Elvis impersonator. Yeah, he was
0: yeah. an Elvis impersonator.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, he was, of course, in his first film, Reservoir Dogs. He was in a bunch of, like, smaller indie films, uh, Sleep With Me, Somebody to Love. Um, he's also in Desperado. Uh, he has that, yes, that, that scene in that Desperado. Scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's that one in scene that where he's just scene, telling yeah.
1: that, that 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 piss joke. <laughs> well, yeah, him and him and Robert Rodriguez were, were buddies. Our, yeah, i yeah. really
0: he, Robert Rodriguez, and Kevin Smith were all like really close friends, um, because they all like came up at that same time. They were all yeah. like they were all at the film festival circuit around that same time. I know specifically, um, El Mariachi and Reservoir Dogs were, came out around the same time. Pulp Fiction and Uh, clerks were out around the same time and i know quentin tarantino and kevin smith both worked um in miramax yeah for most of their careers pretty much up and i know quentin tarantino did pretty much until the weinstein company went under because you know harvey weinstein's trash human being you know what i mean when that whole thing went south but i know kevin smith left years ago he had a falling out with harvey weinstein but yeah there's a whole backstory there but but that's something for a different episode Uh, we just kind of want to stay focused on just the film aspect of Quentin Tarantino. So Reservoir Dogs, let's just get into it. Now that we've kind of got that, that backstory out of the way, um, came out, I think in 1992. So we're talking 25 years ago, more than that. No, 27 years ago in 1992. And this movie is kind of a, a dark comedy, gangster, uh, heist Heist film, heist movie. It's, It reminds me a lot of the Asphalt Jungle Mm -hmm. or Rafifi, something like that. And it's also him starting out experimenting with non-linear plot formatting, which is something that he would do several times during his career. And this is kind of one of those times where it it worked very, very well. Uh, Sometimes it can be used and sometimes it can be very confusing, but Tarantino has such a grasp on just story placement and just Things like that. There's enough there to keep you connected. And Reservoir Dogs has a lot of that in it. But this film is um, is notorious for having a lot of actors in it that would then go on to be bigger actors. Yeah. Um, although the veteran anchor of that film is Harvey Keitel, who was already a relatively yeah, was well-known person.
1: He was the guy that helped get that movie made.
0: Yes, I think he yeah. also helped fund it as well. Yeah, yeah. Also, I think Marty Hellman was a producer on that film or executive producer. I can't remember. Monty Hellman did the film Two Lane Blacktop, um, the uh, the shooting and or the Shootist and the Ride the Whirlwind, which are all films that are in the Criterion Collection.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, Marty Helman was part of that whole Scorsese uh, Spielberg era of the New Hollywood back in the day. Um and probably films that Tarantino watched over and over again. And so that film, going back and looking at that movie, it sort of still really holds up. Yeah, I It mean, really holds if up. If I
1: pitched it to you today, you'd probably be like, I don't want to see that. Like, if I told you <laughs> that this was a heist movie without seeing the heist, you'd be right. like, what the fuck? Like, I don't want to <laughs> yeah. see that movie.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it looks almost like a first film or a – not a student film. I don't want to say that, but it's, it's, it's like, okay, we don't have the money to show off the heist, but what can we do – to make to make this movie possible, okay, well, we'll just have everybody talking in a warehouse the whole time for ninety yeah. minutes almost, and but 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 throughout we'll have flashbacks of each character, and and so you'll get to see who each character is and their
1: relation to this heist. Well, this is and this is really def- really good. Yeah, this is definitely his tightest movie because of how short it is. <laughs>
0: oh yeah, his movies yeah, his movies yeah. would
1: continue to blow and get bigger and bigger as he. I would
0: say this and Death Proof are probably his two.
1: Yeah. And that's uh, only because he did it. It's the, a double. It's a, it's a double feature.
0: Not because, yeah, because the runtime is shorter. Yeah. You know I mean, his other films are much more heavy, heavy lifting, and longer films. But this movie has uh, just just people who starred in it. It has Harvey Keitel, like we've said. It's got uh, Steve Buscemi. It? Steve Buscemi in a uh, young uh, role. Steve Buscemi was working with the Coen Brothers back then.
1: He got. Uh, uh, it's
0: got Chris Penn, Michael Madsen, Tim Roth. Um, Lawrence Tierney, who's a veteran actor, he's from old Hollywood. Like, he was yeah. doing movies in the 40s and 50s, um, and he was a kind of a crazy guy here. And, of course, Quentin's in it as himself. And yeah. what is interesting is that all the dudes and if they don't have character names. They're just, yeah. like, um, they just it's, have colors. It's like, it's like, like an old blonde. school – yeah, it's like a classic a film.
1: It's like a classic film. He would continue to do this in, like, you know, in, like, a Kill Bill where he – you know, The Bride – you yeah, know, the, you
0: know, it's kind of an old school thing where it's not it's not the characters, it's the their profession situation.
1: or their you know their nickname you know, yeah, or yeah,
0: like their characters don't matter. It's their it's, it's their role, it's like their role, what they're doing in the movie and all that the boatmen,
1: the yeah. you know yeah.
0: <laughs> but I meant just like the, in terms of like their importance in the movie. It's yeah. like we don't like for example, I don't need to know what what. Harvey Keitel's name is. I know he says it in the movie, but I don't need to know it for it to have any bearing but on it, but it, but it, but it how does, it affects me watching the
1: movie. It plays into the plot, though, because they're not supposed to bit. know each other's name based off of protecting each other for the heist. Correct, you know? correct. But um, And
0: it, the one thing that became very apparent while watching this movie is that Tarantino's dialogue is incredible. Yeah. It's it's fast. It's... I was going to almost say fast and furious, but it's it's <laughs> fast. It's... It has a great pace to it. And just the back and forth between the characters, the timing of it is all really fantastic. He's taking a lot from people like Howard Hawks, from people like um, Frank Capra, from people um, from the the old golden age of Hollywood who would have very fast talking movies. Yeah, He's taking a lot of that and putting it into his films. But he's giving it a modern tone because they're, cause these movies are R-rated. They can talk in very non-PC ways and say very non-PC things. And going back, you can see where from a modern contextual lens that some of his dialogue is problematic. There's a lot of swear words in it, a lot of sexual stuff in it, misogyny, you can definitely glean that from it as well. But I think just from a technical standpoint, not a lot of movies were doing that back then. And it was kind of a revitalization of you know, this type of heavy talking movie. His movies are very... Much heavy dialogue, Di- dialogue driven, The dialogue yeah. drives the movies. Yeah, you know what I mean. The next movie, my favorite, <laughs> *Pulp Fiction*. Oh yeah. man, I've seen this movie at least a dozen th- th- times.
1: This was my first. This I'm pretty sure was my first Tarantino. Um, I I honestly didn't get into Tarantino until a lot mm. later into my. Uh, I mean, I was like 21 or 22 when I first. I think saw I was too. Yeah. yeah, and it was a friend that showed it to me, and and. I was over at his house watching it, and like I didn't even get to finish the movie on the first go through, and it pissed me That's off long. because it, long. we we well we stopped we he he had to leave and I had to go and I and we stopped at the part with Bruce Willis getting on the bike and oh, leaving man. Zed's dead. That's where you, I had to stop watching. You guys
0: were all already at, they guys were almost done. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck? Can I <laughs> finish this shit? It was like a half an hour left in the movie. Yeah, I know. Um, but yeah, I didn't get into Tarantino until around that age either. Um, I, when I first started collecting DVDs, like around 2007, um, his stuff was kind of the first stuff I bought just from hearing his name. I had never seen any of his stuff before. I think I had seen snippets of Kill Bill, maybe, but I don't think I'd ever seen the whole movie. I don't think I'd ever seen one of his whole movies. And I bought like Reservoir Dogs and I bought Pulp Fiction right off the bat. I don't remember if I bought Kill Bill and Kill Bill Volume 1. I probably did. I can tell you definitely one of the last movies I bought from him was Jackie, was Jackie Brown. Yeah um that didn't you know that wasn't django or the hateful eight but yeah pope fiction when i first saw it one from a first stance and not knowing anything about tarantino is it a tough watch i would say it is because there is so much dialogue there's so many things happening it's non linear yeah it's not linear but if the more you watch the movie i think after Two two viewings, you can piece together the timeline yourself in your head. Yeah, you can start you know to I understand
1: mean? how things fall into place. Yeah.
0: How things fall into place. And this movie, of course, introduced his long-term uh, actor attachment with Samuel L. Jackson,
1: mm-hmm. who is
0: just absolutely fantastic in the movie. Just got nominated for an Oscar. Nominated for an Oscar, and this was also the film that got Tarantino his first Oscar. I believe he won for, for best. Uh, I want to say original screenplay. that's yeah, yeah. gonna be my assumption. Uh, because pretty much almost all of his screenplays are best original screenplays, yeah. um, except for Jackie Brown, which is an adaptation. I think everything else is pretty much original. Yeah, this
1: film won for well, best origi- original. Well, original from a certain standpoint. <laughs> yeah, I guess from a certain standpoint,
0: he is. There, there is a lot of people out there who don't like Tarantino because they feel he's just ripping off. Well, I, you of know, the I films I, from the past. I,
1: I, I, lo- I really, I mean, I enjoy Tarantino. I don't, I don't put him up as high as is every a lot of people do but i, right. I and cuz i do agree that he he does spend a lot of time just reliving the past and oh, putting in of course. and putting it in his movies and and, and and it's fun and everything but i wouldn't say he's necessarily the most original filmmaker um i just think he's he's got an interesting point of view
0: right i'll definitely. say this also he is not the only one and he's not going yeah. to be the last one because pretty much every filmmaker takes things from
1: the past oh, definitely, definitely. Into but he's films. a little bit—he's a little bit on he, the nose. He's a little bit on the nose.
0: You'll—you'll I mean, <laughs> you'll see. I mean, especially with like Kill Bill, like Lucy Liu's character in Kill Bill is clearly Lady Snowblood. Like it's yeah. really oh, Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Clearly. Oh yeah. We'll get—we'll get to that. But um, but in Pulp Fiction is when he really, you know, up uh, arrived on the scene. Like yes. his star power was pretty pretty much there because you get all that critical acclaim. Reservoir Dogs was highly acclaimed as well amongst critics, but now Pulp Fiction, I think, made over $200 million at the box office, oh, yeah. and it's you know small-budgeted movies. This is an eight, eight, $8
1: million movie, I think. There's no
0: stars in that movie. I mean, uh, uh, John Travolta was a big star, but his, his, his popularity star, his, had his, waned. His, his
1: flame had gone out. This was his
0: comeback movie, essentially. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Samuel Jackson was nobody at that time. Of course, he had been in movies. He had been in um, some Spike Lee stuff. He had been in, I mean, Coming to America back in the, <laughs> back in the 80s. He's got that, that one scene where he's robbing McDonald's. But, I mean, this was another one that kind of put him on the scene. Also, yeah. um, who else is in the movie? Uh, Ving Rhames. I yeah. think this was before he was in Mission Impossible.
1: So yeah, yeah, it was.
0: He, he's in that movie. Um, Uma Thurman. A lot, is, yeah, Uma Thurman. She wasn't um, popular at the time. This is certainly another film that was a launching point for her. But Tim Roth again was another one who was in this film. Amanda Plummer, I mean, uh, uh, so many. Uh, Phil Lamar was in the movie. He plays Marvin. Phil yeah. Lamar is the guy who's done like voice acting for like every children's programming in the last <laughs> twenty years. Um, Bruce Willis, like we've said, yeah. was probably the biggest star. I probably, mean, yeah. I just, he had already done two Die Hard movies. I want to say by this point. Yeah. He, maybe he, three? He, he, well um, no he,
1: he 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 was. It was right before he did his third one. Yeah,
0: so he had already done two. That's yeah, it. yeah. So, yeah, so I mean, him, him and John person.
1: Travolta were the two biggest stars. Yeah, because you, you, you watching, could argue John Travolta was a bigger star, but I mean,
0: I, say, I said I this when we did our um, spotlight on the Sixth Sense, but man, go back and watch Bruce Willis in the '90s, where he actually cared because he was really acting his ass off in, yep. in a lot of those movies, and he's really good in this film. He do, he has one one sequence, a part of this uh, in the movie where. Uh, the movie structure where each movie, each part is kind of a little vignette, but they all connect somehow. they all take place and you see other characters in each and in each uh, vignette sometimes. So you see the connections there. It's a really good film. It's a dark comedy as well. There's a lot of dark comedy in it. It's there's there's part gangster film in it as well. Yeah. It's, it's really good. It's, it's fantastic. It's definitely,
1: it was definitely an evolution. It's one of his uh, most
0: well-known films. Yeah. And it's one of the most talked about and just, uh, reference movies, and this is when you started. I think, I think after this is when you start to get a lot of uh, Quentin Tarantino copycats. Yeah, oh people yeah, yeah. Really take a lot from him and do. And you know, and you t- you know, try to emulate. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean, there was the,
1: What was the? What was the movie with the two brothers? That.
0: Oh, uh, uh, you know, I'm gonna imagine. Yeah. Um,
1: uh, the Boon- Boondock Saints.
0: Boondock Saints is a Tarantino ripoff. Yeah. Well, the, the, uh, the, the, that the, guy
1: the, Troy Duffy's not a good filmmaker. No, no, no. <laughs> he really. Well, isn't. The, the main thing that people took from his his films, of course, were his his you know the writing, the dialogue style, the fact that oh, yeah. his characters talk about nonsense basically. And, and yeah. that's that's kind of what he puts in his movies. Is his characters will talk about almost nothing related to the plot. No just random it, everyday things.
0: And, and yeah, and we'll get to that when we get to Once Upon a Time in America. That was one of the things that kind of confused me about why people were upset. Like, oh, the movie is plotless, and I'm like, if you watch Tarantino's movies, the movies his movies aren't about <laughs> pl- his movies. Typically, aren't plot based. Yeah. And if you go back and watch Pulp Fiction, it's not really plot-based. I mean, like I said, it's a fractured plot, so you're just kind of seeing moment to moment, but like you said, the dialogue is is where it's at. Um I'm trying to transition from that to a movie that's kind of one of his most plot-based movies is Jackie Brown.
1: Yeah. In Are the he... sense
0: that it is a da- it is an adaptation of a yeah, novel. Yeah, his
1: only adaptation, yeah.
0: It's an adaptation of a novel novel by the late Elmore Leonard, who has had twenty six of his literary works adapted into some form or another. And the book that it's based on is called Rum Punch. Uh-huh. Apparently, when Tarantino was a kid, he actually he actually got caught shoplifting an Elmore Leonard <laughs> novel, I think, from like a like a market or something. I think when he was a teenager. So there's that connection already. Yeah. And apparently, Elmore Leonard really liked the. Um, um,
1: the, the adaptation
0: movie. here. Um, another movie that was an adaptation of Elmore Leonard, which kind of happened around the same time, was Out of Sight, the movie yeah. by Steven Soderbergh, the one that had George Clooney and um, Jennifer Lopez. Highly recommend that movie if people haven't seen it. Um, the the uh, Michael Keaton character has a cameo in that movie that kind of yeah, connects yeah, the yeah. two. He's in like one scene. Huh. Um, but yeah, he's in it. Uh, so... This, so Jackie Brown is his film that is his, uh, kind of not love letter, but kind of just like statement about, um, him loving, uh, the exploitation films of the 1970s yeah. of which Jackie Brown, the character, I mean, Jackie Brown, of which Pam Graham portrays Jackie Brown was a prominent part of. Yeah. She was in a lot of those B, C movies of that time, um, and movies like um, the bird, like the Big Bird Cage, and Booties in the Jungle, and things <laughs> like that. I'm just, I'm gonna go back. Gonna the, go back the, the one,
1: look. the one I hear is Coffee. Coffee's. The coffee, big one.
0: yeah. Things like uh, Black Mama, White Mama, Coffee. I mean, what Scream? Blackula Scream. Say, say that one title Shiba again. Baby. The Booty
1: one. Which one? What's the n- booty movie again?
0: Uh, I don't know. I, th- I just I want to hear just, you say it again. I think they were just called Booties in the Jungle movies. Booties Sometimes, in the
1: ju- <laughs> I, I've heard that from
0: people say that. Don't ask me. But like, but some of these movies are like, like Foxy Brown. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, things like that.
1: You know, like Austin Powers Three. uh Beyonce's putting doing a. She's supposed to be Foxy. She's Brown. Foxy Clear, Cleopatra.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like the big dollhouse yeah. and women in, uh there's literally a movie called Women in Cages. I mean There you go. There you go. There are these exploitation movies that, you know, they're they're B movies. They like, you know, yeah. the B movies of that era which you've kind of talked about when we talked about a little bit around Roger, Roger Corman and all those types of movies. Black exploitation had things like um like Dolomite and movies like that and she was a prominent actress of that time, of that era and of course by the 1990s she, no one, you know, knew who she was. She she was still working, but her career wasn't relevant, if you will. I mean, she was in... I mean, before this, she was in, like, Escape from LA. A she TV. was in Mars Attacks. I mean, she was doing, like, a lot of TV series and whatnot. But this was kind of a resurgence of her career, or, yet again, a comeback of her career. Um... In the '90s, as well as Robert Forster, yeah. who had ju- has just recently passed away, but this was another comeback for him. He was kind of just a a, a character actor from from back then as well. Yeah, he was never kind of a leading man. He's not a Robert Redford or you know. A but born this Beatty it's what Tarantino, Tarantino like does,
1: man. Tarantino likes to resurrect the careers of certain filmmakers that he connected it, or you know, it's, actors it's and all, actresses. He it's connected all people.
0: To. Yeah, it's all people whose movies he watched when he was younger and he's like oh man I get to work I can work with these people now what are yeah. they doing now let me put them in my movie we that's why we see Bruce Stern in the hateful eight we saw Bruce Stern in once upon a time in in Hollywood where You know that's someone who was in movies back then as well, but he was not a an A list star. He was not a leading man. Although he was in movies, he's in a great movie called Driver, which is basically the premise for for Nicholas Winning reference Drive, um, where he's in that. Bruce Stearns in that movie, but he's all part of that generation as well with Jack Nicholson and all that. Um, But so he has a penchant for revitalizing people's careers, like you said. But in this movie, he also uh, reemploys. Samuel L. Jackson, yep. who has a fantastic, uh, I believe, fake ponytail as well as <laughs> fake rat tail chin yeah, thing. Yeah, chin, <laughs> I think chin, that's what it's called. Little chin goatee. Yeah, I think yeah. It, it is fake, but yet again, I was rewatching this movie the other night. The dialogue is still just oh, so yeah, fantastic. Snappy, man. It's a long movie. It's two hours and 34 minutes, which is the same runtime as Pulp Fiction, but the difference between Jackie Brown and I think Pulp Fiction is. Jackie Brown is more plot based, so therefore it moves a little slower. Yeah. You can kind of feel the two and a half hours a little more. But the character interactions, I think, are great. The the plot, I think, is interesting. Robert De Niro is in the film in one of his most understated performances. Yeah. Where for at least three quarters <laughs> of the movie, he doesn't have any dialogue and is just making faces.
1: Yeah. That's all he's doing. He's very he's very uncomfortable in that movie. He just feels uncomfortable. The whole he's got movie.
0: this big mustache. He's like an ex con and he's, he's trying like, not
1: to get in trouble but then he can't help but get pulled yeah, back in pretty
0: much uh bridget fonda is in the film yeah. who is the daughter of peter fonda uh he she's the niece of jane fonda she's the granddaughter of henry fonda <laughs> so you have that old school a lot of, a lot of history hollywood there. family co- connection right there and of course you know tarantino knows who peter fonda henry fonda oh, jane fonda uh, yeah oh,
1: yeah are of course and uh, i mean let's not forget we have a uh, Young Chris Tucker in this. movie. Young
0: Chris Tucker is in the beginning of this movie. There's a whole sequence at the beginning of this movie where it revolves around the Chris Tucker character, and, and it's just like, and it doesn't quite have a, a bearing on the movie. It's just really fantastic. He, and he's a means to an end. He, he, yeah, he's he, a means to an end. He, he, he it gives kind of you, he gives things. you a
1: little bit of st- more on Sam Jackson's character. You know, does, how far he'll go.
0: What is interesting though is I'm watching this movie like last night. Rewatching it actually and you get an hour in, it's not until like an hour into the movie where the the main plot actually like really kicks in Yeah. and that's something that's really interesting with Tarantino's films is especially his longer films well mostly his longer films is he takes his time he takes his time setting up situations setting up dialogue just having characters interact with one another and yet again it's not conducive to the plot he's not setting up plot points he's just having people having conversations, talking to each other, having making cultural references. The movie opens with Samuel Jackson just watching a video about, you know, really attractive women selling guns, <laughs> and he's just going off about, you know... AK-47. AK-47, when you have to kill absolutely everybody in the room. Except Every no motherfucker sub- in the room. <laughs> yeah, I want I'll to it you. You. yeah, I'll say, say it for you. I'll say it for you. Except <laughs> no substitute. And then he's like, talking about the forty five. he's like... He's like uh, everybody wants to have the forty-five because the killer had a forty-five. But what people don't know is that the that the forty-five has a jamming problem. And then he's talking about like, oh yeah, I'm you know I you know I buy it for this and I sell it for that, and it's just like what you what you're learning is that he's a he's a gun runner yeah. and a drug smuggler and all that kind of stuff. He's a, he's an he's a, yet again a a nefarious character, which is really interesting. Is that the the three films that we've talked about so far? They all have really like. Morally bad characters at their center for yeah. the most part, and yet you still watch it and you still enjoy Compelled. the movie. At yeah, least yeah. from my perspective. Yeah. Granted, Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown's also, you know, someone who is not exactly morally, you know, bright. She's she's smuggling drugs back and forth to Mexico and, and back because she's a flight. But attendant, she's the, mo- but she's the most. But she's
1: the most empathetic. You know. But like- she's
0: doing it because. She's got a shitty job and she needs the money and all this kind of stuff. She I mean, seems the, th- the
1: least uh, bad. Yeah, yeah, the least <laughs> bad. Of course, Robert
0: Forster, I think, is the, the is white the, knight. The, of the, the nicest, movie. Th- yeah, yeah. The white knight of the movie. And, and their back and forth is really, really interesting because they have like a kind of a romance thing happening or unrequited She's more using him, really but good. I mean, yeah. She is, um, yeah. but. It's but, but you if know wants to use me to make money sure yeah, can why use not? me to make money yeah, why yeah. Not? but
1: but you know these first three films have all kind of been in that kind of close in that same genre of crime movie really yeah you C- know crime dark comedy morally gray characters yeah. very dialogue
0: heavy very you know they're all of a certain ilk they're all yeah. very much uh very similar to one another but then we get like a five-year
1: break I was gonna say we get a break and then yeah. now we go dramatically different.
0: Dramatically different Now yeah. it is the early 2000s And we
1: have this movie Kill Bill Yes It's his Really long Revenge movie Basically And this and, movie and this, Now we're, we're We're going ahead And saying one movie As in, as in Yeah one I do two. want to
0: mention It, it was split up Because it's like Over four hours long So they wanted yes. to Split it Split it in half Part one comes out And then part two Part one came out I want to say 2003 I think it was A and year the, later right Yeah the other one Came out in and Four? Yeah, that's what I want to say. Um, let me make sure about that. But, yes, 2003 and 2004. Yeah. And and what is interesting is that if you watch them as just one whole film back-to-back, you can. It has the whole bloody affair, as yes. they say. Or if you want to watch them separately, you can do that as well, because they there are two different... like There's, there's a way to break them up to where they're two different movies. Yeah. Part one feels very much like a martial arts, kung fu... A Chinese Kung Fu film as well as Japanese Samurai film Revenge Story the second film feels very much like a Spaghetti Western also yeah. Revenge Story you know what I mean so there's the difference between the two I believe um, RZA from the Wu-Tang this is when RZA and Tarantino kind of became friends I think RZA yes. did the music for these films at least for the first part um, because R- I, people who don't know this the Wu-Tang Clan and RZA and all those <laughs> guys really love Chinese uh, martial arts films you're really into that if you ever listen to their movies. Um, you know, uh, Enter the 36th Chamber and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of the reference point for where uh, Tarantino got his influence from for these movies, for Kill Bill. It's in those old Shaw Brothers types of martial arts movies. But what we have here is Uma Thurman, once again being in one of his films, and she uh, is Beatrix Kiddo or the Bride. And she is someone who. Uh, is initially thought to be killed by someone called Bill, and she wants to get her revenge. Hence the title of the movie, Kill Bill. And it's really stylized. Yes. It, this is probably his most stylized movie up to this point, to the point where I think like everybody thought afterwards his movies were going to be this stylized.
1: Well, I think but, it, was a, it was a shock at first, because yeah, he because hadn't done anything so, like this yet.
0: No, and he had done a little bit of homage-type stuff when it came, I think, to some of the violence he had put in like Pulp Fiction where, where uh, Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta characters are shooting those kids or whatever and then yeah. the screen like flashes red. Like that's something that's an homage to, I believe, Sergio Leone or something like that. And so he's used those homage before. But here, he takes all of the homages from all of those movies that we've talked about and dials it up to 11 and gives it to us. You know yes. what I mean? And it's probably his most fun and easy watching film Maybe yeah. not easy watching, but it's I would most say it's, entertaining. No, I'd say
1: it's his most accessible movies.
0: Enterta- I would say entertaining. Uh, at least part, Kill Bill Part One is his sh- is the shorter is the shorter version.
1: Yeah, is the shorter. I it's like, it it's like clocks, an hour and fifty minutes.
0: Yeah, it only clocks in like Stephen said, hour and fifty one minutes. The second one is the one that's much longer yeah, and much slower.
1: It goes more into the backstory.
0: a little really bit. It you know, it's, yeah, it's, it
1: slows down in a second. It's two
0: hours. Yeah. It's two
1: hours and seventeen minutes.
0: Yeah. And I heard. I heard doing my research that there's a three-hour cut of *Kill Bill* yeah, Part that two. Yeah,
1: that's the whole bloody affair thing. Oh, is that what that yeah, is? Yeah, Where yeah, that, that, that's putting them together, and there's extra footage. I think. Yeah, and um,
0: yeah. He he showed like that cut of the movie at the 2004 Cannes Film Festival when he was on the jury, and he, yeah, he showed that at one of the screenings. Um, I would sit down for a three-hour. Um, it's the thing burn. is, it's not
1: really available.
0: <laughs> that's the thing. It's, it's you can't available. buy it anywhere.
1: It's like it's. You know, I, you, I don't think you can. I'm pretty sure. I've tried. Sure you can. I've tried. I can't find You can it. get
0: Kill yeah. Bill. I mean, the closest we can get is Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2 on Blu ray and then watch yeah. them back to back. Yes. Uh, that's pretty much the way you can see them. Um, I don't know. I know they did a Grindhouse one where they combined both of them. There's a collector's edition yeah. that I'm looking at right now that just has Grindhouse on it. You yeah. have Planet Terror and you have Death Proof on it. But Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2 are some of people's favorite of his films. I would, I would just say, for the sake of argument, let's say they're all just one big movie. Um, well, well, that's, the ca- that's the way that's he that's the way it. he that's the way he says it and honestly it is one whole big story because yeah. spoiler at the end of part one she doesn't end up killing Bill so yeah. you gotta get to part two to get that conclusion of the story but it's a large tapestry and once again you have a really good cast Uma Thurman Lucy Liu Vivica A. Fox Daryl Hannah the late David Carradine Michael Mattson once again um it's a really really good film Michael Parks is in
1: it as well um he, Sonny Chiba is in the first one.
0: Sonny Chiba in the first one. Um, yeah, it's it's you get a lot a lot of influence in this. And what is kind of interesting about it is, is, like I said before, with him taking all of these influences and putting them in his films, you can go back and watch so much of his stuff, or so much of the stuff that he gets the influence from. Like if you want to watch Lady Snowblood, you can watch Lady Snowblood. Yeah. If you want to watch the 36th Chamber, the Shaw Brothers movies, all that kind of stuff, you can. You want to watch Spaghetti Westerns you can Sergio there's, Leone There's also so a, a really the great
1: there's a really great animated sequence that yes, tells the backstory Yes there is there's an
0: anime yeah. sequence yeah. yeah with with Lucy Liu's character's backstory which yeah. is really bloody and brilliant and looks fantastic um the movie is of course up this is where Tarantino I guess gets the name for being excessively violent because at the end of the, the first part there's a huge
1: just, oh. Crazy, idi- crazy, it crazy 88, we caught the Crazy 88 scene. Yeah, the
0: soundtrack in the movie is fantastic yeah. as well. The characters that are in it are really, really good. But man, that these are movies we, we all have to save for spotlights later because they're all so much to digest and yeah. break down with all of them. But moving on from Kill Bill, and moving on from Kill Bill, there's another... There's not quite a time lapse. Moving on from Kill Bill, I think is when we get to Death Proof, right?
1: Yes. His yes.
0: second... Yeah, kind of. Actually, this is a good part to go back and and do this because we forgot uh, the anthology movie, The Four Rooms. He teamed with uh, Robert Rodriguez. Uh, let again his 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 buddy Robert Rodriguez. He he teamed up with him and two other directors. And why won't it let me look <laughs> at this? Oh, here it is. Four Rooms. The segment The Man from Hollywood. But it's. Robert Rodriguez, Allison Anders, Alexander Rockwell, those are the those are the four that are in there. And he once again reteams with Robert Rodriguez, who he also teamed with on From Dusk Till Dawn, where he was an actor in the movie and he gets he gets I mean spoiler alert he gets killed off pretty early in that movie. But he's actually a scumbag in that movie; he deserved yeah. to get killed. Um, it's actually his death kind of kicks off the main plot of that movie. <laughs>
1: it's really <laughs>
0: important to know this, but uh, spoiler alert there. So yet again. Teaming with Robert Rodriguez to make Grindhouse. Now Grindhouse is basically an homage to the old school B C movie Grindhouse films that you would see in drive in movie theaters back in the sixties, back in the seventies. Think Roger Corman once again and think of like over the top violence, sex, nudity, you you know, know, gold. Stuff like that.
1: I mean, uh, Robert Rodriguez himself would would go on to do more movies like this, like mis- the Machete movies.
0: Yeah, the Machete movies definitely re- re- are right out of this. I want to say Machete, maybe, because they did a bunch of fake movie trailers while like while they were showing these movies, and they did like um like I don't think of, I don't know if Machete was one, but I don't know if Hobo with a Shotgun.
1: Yeah, Hobo with a the Shotgun. They ended up doing a movie for it, yeah. and it was one of the trailers. Yeah, there was
0: a Thanksgiving uh, trailer that was shot by. Um, Oh, what's his face? He was in *Inglorious Bastards. Oh, man. He did uh, The Green Inferno. Um,
1: oh, you're talking his... about Eli Roth?
0: Eli Roth, yes. Eli Roth, who... Not that great of a director, but yeah. we'll get to that different point at a different time. But yeah, he he directed like one of those as well, um, which people want to see a movie from. And so, so he did um, the second half, which was Death Proof. The first one is Planet Terror, which I think is kind of like a zombie apocalypse one, um, and Planet Terror has the character of stuntman Mike portrayed by um, Kurt, Russell. Kurt Russell, and he kind of goes around like driving like a stunt car and murdering women <laughs> while driving around the stunt car. Yet again, it's a short movie, a lot of dialogue based, but it's a movie that probably stars people you you are aware of. It's. It stars, of course, Kurt Russell, but Zoe Bell is in it. Zoe Bell is actually a stunt woman, and she's kind of become Tarantino's uh, stunt coordinator. And, and she's she primarily also makes cameos did it. She
1: primarily did stunts for Uma Thurman.
0: Yeah, she did stunts for Uma Thurman, but she's kind of made cameo appearances sure, as, an yeah, a, yeah. as an actress. She started in to be movies. in
1: the movies themselves, yeah.
0: Yeah, Rosario Dawson's in it. Um, Mary Elizabeth Winstead's also in the movie. Rose McGowan, I think, is in the movie as well. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, yeah, Eli Roth's also in the movie. I'm just looking down. But, yeah, it's one of his shorter films. And, Stephen, I'm going to get a lot of shit for this. Actually, the movie is an hour and 53 minutes, but I'm probably going to get a lot of shit for this. If I had to rank my Tarantino movies, this, unfortunately, may be at the bottom. It's, and I don't hate the movie. I like the movie I, a lot, actually. I don't, actual. hate, I don't and, hate
1: the movie, but it is it is my least favorite.
0: What's crazy uh, is, like... Yeah. It's tough to tar- to rate. I have to rate Tarantino with like a like an exclaimer saying like I kind of love all of his movies, but if I had to rank them in terms of favorability of ones I like the most versus least, Death Proof I think would be at the bottom. Yeah, and I, that's not because I don't like the movie because I really like the movie a lot, but that's just that's just me in general. And also it's it is an I would say it's an underrated movie in his overall career as well um and that's and i'm saying that with someone who ranks it at the bottom this, so, this, this movie
1: this movie also uh you know uh being that it has a lot of women in it, uh, it really shows off his fetish for females feet uh
0: oh yeah. that's something that's been right around since pulp fiction since yeah oh, it's been there see, since the beginning yeah oh yeah the first time we see uma thurman in that film we see her what we don't see her face we see her uh, mouth going against the microphone t- uh, to ask vincent vega to come in and make a drink and all that stuff but when we see her uh, there's just a tracking shot of her walking across the floor with just her feet. Yes. Once upon a time in, I think by this point in once upon a time in Hollywood, he was doing it just to like mess with people like yeah. saying like, Oh, I all, I know that you all know it. So I'm just going to do he, it again. He's done <laughs> it in every I mean? movie since, <laughs> yeah. since Fiction. Yeah. It's a thing. I mean, everybody, literally there's a scene everybody...
1: where in, in glorious bastards where you, you know, there's a shoe scene where you got to take off of, the shoe off the foot of, uh, uh Diane Kruger. And then okay. you put, yeah, I mean, there's so many scenes, <laughs>
0: There are, and hey, I mean, if you got a sexual fetish out there,
1: as long as it nothing not hurt, right? hurt anybody. I'm just surprised Tarantino has continued to do it yeah. in every movie. <laughs> yeah, as long as it doesn't hurt
0: anybody, it's not breaking any laws, and you're not, a, you know, doing anything that's terrible. Have at it. But moving on, because we don't want to spend too much time here, because the next one's kind of a biggie, and that is Inglorious Bastards. Yes, which came out in 2009. His previous film had come out in 2007 in Death Proof. Um, he also did a small guest directorial spot in Sin City. It's just that it's a one scene yeah, in a the one, car with Clive yeah. Owen and Benicio del Toro. But he, we, I guess, we have to mention that I just just because. But this big one here is Inglorious Bastards. This may be people's favorites. It's
1: it's it's definitely my favorite. I think it's my favorite.
0: I um, I waver right now between Pulp Fiction and Inglorious Bastards. I don't know if Pulp Fiction. I'm holding to it because it because it's. It's a movie I've seen so many times, and I have like a, a an attachment yeah. to it. But Inglorious Bastards is pretty fantastic. Yeah, I mean that movie is the
1: screenplay, the acting. Well, I mean, I would say the biggest thing for a lot of us is is the introduction of Christoph Waltz. It really is. You like know?
0: no, I have no idea who Christoph Waltz was before this film. I mean, we also have this is also starts his. Uh, I mean, they've only done two movies. Brad Pitt is in it. Uh, Melanie Laurent, Eli Roth, once again, he's the uh, Danny Donowitz, the Jew Bear, he's in the movie. Michael Fassbender. This was 2009. This was before Michael Fassbender was really known. I yeah. mean, this was before X. He was in X Men. This was before Shame. This is before anything else, really. Diane Kruger, like you said, is in the film. Um, yeah, it's it's BJ. It, there's a lot of people in here, but yeah, this screenplay is amazing. Just upon rewatching this movie, this screenplay is incredible. The acting is incredible. It's playing into, once again, Quentin Tarantino's um, kind of fantasy fiction world where he likes to play with history, because he does the same thing once again in Once Upon a Time in America, where... It's a combination of fact and fiction. It's a fantasy, alternative history. There's a lot of people out there who have made this argument, and I think people kind of adopted it. Is that all of his movies are connected in some way? Yeah. Um, where uh, the red apple cigarettes show up, I think in nearly all of his movies. I'd have to like, do a whole like, uh, you know, investigation on the, that. Yeah,
1: there's there's some videos you can look up out there where people show you all the connections and things and. Right. I, I think it's a little loose. I think the connections are mm-hmm. loose. They're, they're just good enough connections where you can maybe believe. Well,
0: well I, I do think, I mean, the most solid connection for me is Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction where yeah. Michael Madsen's character in Reservoir Dogs is the brother of the John Travolta character yeah, in Pulp I mean, Fiction. He, they have the same last name.
1: Well, there was I mean, a time where, connection. Yeah, there was a time where he wanted to do a Vega Brothers movie. Right. And then it never happened and you know now they're both kind of too old. They I just, guess. Yeah,
0: also, yeah. the both of their... I mean, well that's the, the thing is they're are, they're too old
1: now. Yeah. If if they were gonna do it it'd have to be a prequel. And yeah, now they're too old. Yeah. Now yeah,
0: I mean John Travolta, whatever nowadays. But yeah, Inglourious Bastards is star studded, like I said, the story is really good. This is another film that I think kind of relies heavily on plot. Yeah. More so than um some of the films in the past. I would say even Kill Bill is kind of plot heavy as well. But there's a lot of plot but it's more spectacle. I think in that film, when it comes to the action, I think in Kill Bill is kind of his. Kill Bill, Death Proof has action as well, and this film has action as well, but Kill Bill has a lot of action to the point where that really drives that movie along. Yeah. At least that first part. That second part is very heavily dialogue based, very heavily plot based, but. And Glorious Bastards does have a heavy plot as well. And it's a more larger, expanding plot. There's a lot of things happening. Christoph Waltz's character's doing stuff. Brad Pitt and his crew are doing stuff. Melanie Laurent's character's doing stuff with their whole theater and their whole murder plot that's in that movie. If you haven't seen any of these movies, <laughs> and we're just throwing random things out at you. Go back and watch these movies. Marathon them. Have a Quentin Tarantino marathon. Yes. Just go through all of them um, because it's it's a lot of fun and in this podcast will make a lot more sense. We're yeah. under the assumption that some most of you up there have seen if you if you've seen this movies, podcast
1: you've probably seen all his movies.
0: I mean, the, the I would say his films are the ones I would start with if you're trying to get into like you know cinema or trying to be more serious about cinema and you want to see more movies that aren't necessarily the mainstream superhero well, I mean, tentpole stuff. See them movies
1: and then maybe watch the like some like behind the scenes or commentaries yeah. so that you can maybe get the context of what he was talking about this, in these I'll movies. I'll say this.
0: Yeah, each Blu-ray or DVD does have a lot of special features that go into the movies, typically. I yeah. think Kill Bill is actually one that's lacking the most where it's literally just things that I think it's just Rizzo talking about the music. But anywho, <laughs> but most of the other ones are pretty much got a lot of stuff that shows you production and shows you uh, you know, cast interviews and Tarantino's for someone who is, you know, very guarded when it comes to, I think his work in the sense that, um, you know, he doesn't want people to, you know, leak his screenplays, which we'll get to when we get to this, his next movie <laughs> is that like, well, not his next
1: movie, but the movie uh, after his next movie. Cause Django. Yes. Oh,
0: next. Django. Yeah. 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 The movie yeah. after his next movie. You're right. <laughs> I, see. I accidentally skipped one where, like he re- when it comes time to doing like press tours and interviews yeah. and all that kind of stuff there's like probably hours of footage on youtube of him just talking about his movies and movies in general there was a whole thing i i when when hateful a came out he and paul thomas anderson had this whole talk about like just um what well, things we talked about before like *Cinemascope* and like Cinerama dome and like yeah he just he just prints shot prints on seventy mm yeah and like yeah, yeah. We, like they had a whole discussion about like um like uh, like all that kind of like stuff they used to do back then with like uh, roadshow movies and the movies that felt like rides and whatnot in three D and all that kind of stuff but yeah it's, so there's so much stuff out there but Inglorious Bastards one of his best can't recommend it enough um, his next film. He once again dips into a a genre. I, I would say that *Inglorious Bastards* is his war movie. You have to give give that yeah. a genre. It's his homage to war films of of yesteryear. Things like you yeah. know *The Longest Day* and. Uh, Dirty Dozen and things like that and all those types of movies, those World War II movies, which there were so many of them in the forties and fifties and sixties.
1: I mean the Inglorious Bastards is, was already a movie. Yeah,
0: Inglorious Bastards was literally already a movie. Yeah. Um so Django Unchained is his homage to Spaghetti Westerns, and it's his also Ven it's also a revenge film. And it's a film that um really it was his kind of at least at the time, the way he rationalized it is that he wanted to make a movie, um, a spaghetti western set in the Deep South. This movie yeah. takes place in 1858, and he wanted it to make kind of like a, like a vengeful commentary, I guess, on slavery, American slavery. Yeah. And he made th- he said things like you know, uh, you know, America's never really doesn't really like to talk about it or deal with it in any way. So I'm going to make a spaghetti western movie about it. And a lot of people didn't 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 really oh got, t- like, like, take to that. like like
1: most of his movies, it was very controversial right yeah
0: there are certain controversies to it cuz you know there's been a whole like um there's that there's been that debate pretty much for a long long time even before recent events do movies and TV shows and music impact uh these, uh, you know, horrific crimes like mass shootings and things like that. Yeah. And,
1: and Tarantino They do, always do, ask Tarantino about that. Yeah, do film... We can get into it more when we talk about yeah, what's yeah, on a time in That's a whole other thing, yeah. But yeah, um, with this movie, a lot of the controversy was around the N-word being used many times.
0: That's something that's actually come up in his films a lot. Yes.
1: Um, Especially Spike Lee. Word. Spike Lee doesn't care for it. There's a lot of people. <laughs> I wouldn't say not
0: only Spike Lee. Spike Lee didn't, didn't like the fact that he was treating the slavery era... Through the lens of a spaghetti western, he didn't like that at the time. But the N word has been something he's used since Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Used it then. He used it a lot in Pulp Fiction. His character in Pulp Fiction used it a lot. Samuel Jackson's character uses it pro- profoundly a lot. Yeah. Um. And it's it's something that is is definitely controversial. Yeah. It's it's probably one of the one of the more controversial things that he's done, and. I don't it's tough man because it's a word you shouldn't you shouldn't really say there's no real context to where you one should say that word and in the movies the characters saying it's Satan it in such a such a brash way sometimes it's used for insult sometimes it's used in well, a okay. colloquial conversation I mean this is a
1: whole it's thing a whole it's a whole, a whole thing we can go down a whole thing we gotta but, stay on, but the thing stay is, on is is thing it's thing like again. it's a thing we're continuing to fight all the time, and especially with his movies, you know, using that word during that time was like breathing. That was a word that was used all the time. So oh, historically... If we're, about, if we're talking about Django specifically, yes. Historically, it, it, it kind of falls in line, but the problem is, is that it's uh, Tarantino, a white director, making this movie, and that's the problem. Um, it's also a
0: problem. I mean, in, in his other films... He used it a lot as well, and sure. th- those weren't period
1: pieces. But, but, but of course, but, yeah, back in nobody wants to look at the yeah. movies in the context of how he's making the movies. These are obviously exploitation movies. What and they is, don't, but they don't like that he's making them. Well, That's what, what I, does that I
0: mean? <laughs> what is really unfortunate is that that word is probably used in everyday conversation so brashly and so loosely yeah. more than it, more than it should be. Yeah. Or yeah, so that's something I think that he's I'm not, highlighting. Definitely. I'm not saying it's okay. I don't no, I don't no, use no. the, I don't use the wanna, word. I just want to acknowledge that it is something that is used a lot in sure, just yeah. society and reality, and he's kind of taking that and putting it into his movies. And I don't know if he's commenting on it's used so briskly that that that
1: people should well, take I, notice I th- I of think, it. I think the thing is, is people people can't separate reality from movies like he can. That
0: yeah, there's a. Yeah, P- people people want
1: to take the movies and put it into their everyday life, like it's 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 affecting them or it's a, an issue because it's like it's supposed to it, possibly influence in people, like you said. And, and yeah. to me, I, to me, if you can't separate movies from reality, and if you don't want to see that, then just don't watch the movie. That's it's what really, I say.
0: Especially with a modern day contextual lens, the line between reality and movies has blurred significantly yeah. in terms of the way in which people. Analyze and talk about movies. They talk about these movies as if they're saying real world things. Well, and sometimes is, they're is, not. And sometimes they are. The big converse- that, Well, the big conversation
1: I mean? is: is do film does film have a moral? Do filmmakers have a moral obligation to put things in their movies that are, you know. "Quote unquote PC" or like you know to be morally responsible because well, they don't want to influence people or or give people bad ideas or do they have that obligation? And I don't think they do. I don't think
0: they do either, simply because I view films as an art form, yes. and I don't think art should be censored.
1: Now you're I, censoring I mean, no matter because yeah. if you only made movies that uh, promoted. Good things, quote unquote, the good things in the world, then. They get boring. It would be boring and it wouldn't be real. It wouldn't be close to reality. No. You know, and movies are supposed to blur that lines between reality and no. fiction. You know. Now, I
0: will also say, I guess, devil advocate is like if someone wants to criticize someone for putting something there's nothing in their film, you have yeah. the right to do that entirely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no one's saying you don't have the right to do that. But let's get back on track here. Let me push everything back to yeah, Django. Let's get, let's
1: get let's get into the next film, *Spaghetti right.
0: Western*. It's *Spaghetti Western* 18, 1858. Uh Django is portrayed by uh, Jamie Fox, and he's a former slave who's trying to get. Um, yeah, he's trying to get his wife, who's been sold who's sold into slavery,
1: and um Well he gets and, he he gets he runs away and he becomes yeah, a bounty hunter with he Christoph b- Waltz's case. Christoph
0: Waltz is in the movie. But once yeah. again, he won another Oscar for this film. Which um,
1: I think it should have went to DiCaprio, but I mean that's just not
0: DiCaprio's also in this movie. It's the first time DiCaprio's worked with Tarantino up to this point, and DiCaprio is Calvin amazing Candy. in this movie. Calvin Candy, Calvin Candy, and he, and the way in which the racism is played in this movie, once again, is so over the top and so and so just absurd that it shows what racism is is absurd? is an absurd yeah. bullshit like nonsensical, non reasoning Spe- thing. It's garbage. It's garbage ideology. Especially in the scene
1: with Don Johnson, where oh, Don Johnson's Don like Johnson? you know yeah.
0: I mean, and there's Don Johnson, there's a there's a dog scene where they're chasing an escaped slave. There's just every line of dialogue from Calvin Candy is just like absurdly racist. The whole and thing about the racism skull is absurd. And the, and the dents yeah, in and the it skull. shows that these people have these warped minds and ideologies yeah, yeah. that that they they're just garbage. And what is interesting is that it's also commenting on how that that type of mindset like has been around for a long time yeah. it's even into today that type of racial prejudice where people are seen as inferior and all that kind of stuff but you also have once again Samuel L. Jackson is in this movie and he's
1: fantastic oh, Steven. and if,
0: Steven. he's basically an Uncle Tom he is yeah. a self-hating slave essentially he's someone who's so sold into that type of mindset that he's basically he's the living embodiment of that that racist ideology. Um, and it's really, really interesting what they do with his character in the movie. Yet again, it's, a lot of people have, have problems with Tarantino taking this type of serious stuff. Like we're talking about slavery, racism, and playing it for, and playing it. Um, Jokes and using comedy in it, but yeah. I think he's showing the, like I said, the absurdity in it. But it's a great film. It's a long movie. It's one that I saw in theaters and I really enjoyed I it. I really enjoyed that. I've re- I've watched it a few times. I know some people don't like it, and that's fine. It's it's. But in, I, my, I think it's in it moves. my top
1: ones. It's definitely in my top three it, or four. Yeah, maybe. the
0: pacing moves. It definitely, it, I know a lot of people like, like, think it gets significantly better once you get to Candyland and you get to Calvin Candy and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but I, I like the whole movie as a yeah. whole. I think. I think it's fantastic, but moving the, on, like uh, you well, said the score too. Isn't the score, oh yes, uh, Ennio sco- Morcone.
1: Oh no, that was or, the, no, that's that hateful, hateful eight. eight. Yeah. That's hateful eight. But the but the but the score score in uh, Django is really good. It is really, he really uses good. a yet, lot of um, and yet
0: again he's taking all that influence from spaghetti yeah. westerns, Sergio Leone and all yeah. those and all those westerns from back then, and putting them into this film, including the score and and, and certain things. Certain and themes. The movie is bloody me, and yeah. violent. Yeah. You know what.
1: I thought he said something. No, no, no. Um, I was just saying, he uses certain themes from Westerns in in this. Oh,
0: for sure. For sure. Just even musically, like you said. But his next film is The Hateful Eight, which he almost didn't make because the the first screenplay leaked online somewhere or leaked to somebody. And apparently, he only gave it to like three people to read. He only gave it to Brewster and Michael Madsen and somebody else and Tim Roth, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was those three. And somehow it ended up out in the ether and he got pissed. Well, <laughs> he got really you know pissed. The, thing,
1: the thing is is they're all three still working in his movies yeah, so I Yeah, so I'm like
0: who leaked he's not it? What if, if it wasn't those guys? Yeah. Did somebody like intercept it? Maybe he it got or, hacked
1: or something. Or know. maybe
0: somebody steal it from him. You know he writes that he probably yeah, writes Yeah, you're right. Written, he didn't put it on a typewriter. You know he writes on a <laughs> typewriter probably. I mean, who really I mean, he won't he won't shoot his films digitally let alone. Yeah, you're use right. His computer I'm to write that stuff. was dumb. Right. <laughs> but that dude uh, that dude
1: you know like carves it into a piece of wood or something
0: <laughs> but after a couple of rewrites and reworkings of the script and changing endings and all that kind of stuff he ended up doing it and it's in it's once again an homage to the old school western roadshow type films basically the roadshow edit of a movie back then was longer it's a longer cut it had an overture and had an intermission yeah. Um, you know, basically, like you would see movies back in the day, and the road Show roadshow edition showed around around the country in a few. Well, years yeah, I got that. a
1: chance to see this in uh, on film, right? Um, in the roadshow version, where there's the you know there's an overture, then there's an intermission, and and um, yeah, it's, it was it was fantastic. I got a um, program.
0: Yeah, I know he he added a few extra minute. He added a yeah. few more minutes and he also like changed some dialogue and whatnot yeah i think throughout the movie but this movie i was particularly fascinating for me because just from a a you know film history standpoint i mean the the old school westerns i find to be eternally fascinating um and i really was interested in what he could do and also it's kind of his version of a play it was basically a three-hour play. it's it's
1: basically a western mixed with the murder on orient express yeah, you know, it's, it it's all a takes done place
0: it, yeah, know. it all takes place in one location. Yeah. Um what I really like about this movie is I think it was shot in like super cinemascope, wasn't it?
1: Like Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It was like it was two, a 70mm movie.
0: Yeah, he used the same lenses that they used
1: Lawrence for Lawrence of Arabia.
0: For Lawrence of Arabia, they had yeah. to dig those things out of storage. Yeah. The one thing I also remember from this film is that just uh, exhibiting the film was an issue because 2015, I mean... Well, no, nobody.
1: Yeah, nobody, nobody had the, the technology yeah. anywhere. Everybody switched to digital.
0: Every theater had switched to digital. None of the projectionists knew what the heck to do with the... One, they had to go back and they had to find uh, the projectors that were equipped to project these movies... In seventy millimeter, well, yeah, I mean, the, for the for they the, didn't for have the initial they
1: didn't. run where they showed it on film, they did, but yeah, they, but but they, there was a digital version, you know. Oh that, yeah, there was a
0: digital. Yeah. There's always a, when these things are exhibited. Uh, I think there's always a digital backup just yeah. in case. Yeah. That happened a lot where the projector broke down or the projector there was a malfunction or there was something wrong with the the print or whatnot. And I think they were only able to exhibit it in like a hundred cinemas. Nationwide or something like that. For yeah, that it was very limited was. in film. It was very yeah. limited because they could only find so many projectors, and and they, the people working at the theater didn't know what the heck they were doing yeah. with it. I mean, I mean, Stephen, you worked as a projectionist. Yeah,
1: I I, I I was fortunate enough to be there right near the end, where I actually got to work with film, which was really cool. Um, but yeah, even the theater I work at, I used to work at now, is all digital. There's no. Yeah,
0: they're, they're all digital now, and so they had trouble exhibiting it. But. I re- and this was one of the. This is actually just going back and because there's so much Tarantino fervor right now, a lot of people don't like this
1: movie.
0: Some yeah, it's, a lot
1: of people yeah. think it's too long and too bore. It's boring and it's and uh, you know, it, it's not one I've gone back to watch a bunch. Um, I think I've seen it maybe, I've maybe twice, seen it two or three times, yeah, maybe. Same here, um, but it's. It's definitely interesting. I, I I think part of it is too is maybe because he had just done a western and that he kind of did Could another be. western again. Um, it's
0: also a film that is probably his most
1: aggressively angry film. I don't know. That's that, just the
0: way I get. That's well, the way that, I get.
1: And very much, it's definitely all dialogue driven. Like oh it's yeah, it's all like three, it's three hours it, of dialogue. There's no there's it's no locate only two locations. There's the yeah, the carriage. Outside, Outside and inside. Basically. Yeah, and then the inside, and that's it. Uh, inside of the place that they go to, and you just hear a lot of people talking about stuff for, for two uh, two and a half hours. I'll say this. The dialogue is amazing. Oh, it's great. I mean, I, I, mean, I enjoy the movie to an a certain extent. Like you said earlier, none of these movies are bad. No. But, but it's like... Different levels of good. Um, say, and, yeah, you know. and the cast is amazing. Samuel L. Jackson's
0: back again. Yeah. Kurt Russell's back again. Jennifer Jason lee is really good in the film. I really
1: like Walter uh, Walton Walton Goggins. Walton
0: Goggins, who is kind of more of a character actor now, but he's getting a lot more work. And Damian Bashir, Tim Roth, Michael Matson, Bruce Stern is in the film. Um, Zoe Bell makes a small small role in it. Um, yeah, it's. It's very much. A did you say Jennifer drama. Jason Lee? I did say Jennifer Jason oh, yeah, Leigh, Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah a lot of she, people... Her, her
1: role, she got nominated for this movie. She
0: did. And there's a lot of people who have a lot of problems with the way in which her character is treated in this movie. Because basically, for like three hours, she's constantly
1: getting like beat up and this hit. This is a, a pro- continuous thing throughout yeah. all Tarantino movies. He doesn't have any problems beating up women. Now, I don't think that no. that means that Tarantino likes to beat women. I think that he just. Uh, wants to make f- I, I, to me the way I see it is is he's he's being equal uh, equal with the violence because men get their asses killed just as much as women do in his movies
0: well yeah there and, I mean there's that's all there's a whole argument here to be had a whole episode to be had but there's a lot of yeah there's a he there are a lot of the ways in which he shoots he has women in his films and the way in which he has men in his films are two different there's two different distinctions. I mean, granted, his films, I would say, for the most part, this is me just generalizing, they're mostly catered toward a male audience. Yes, they're they're, they're definitely... I'm just generalizing saying that. Do women enjoy his films? Of course they do. But I'm just saying, like, they do seem to have a masculinity to them. Sure. Even, Even Kill Bill, which has a female... Lead who's that, but she's out there, you know, kicking ass and taking yeah. names, and you know she's awesome and badass. You know what I mean? And of course, women can be awesome and badass yeah. as well. But I mean, men see that like, oh, cool. Let me go see this action scene where everybody's you know cutting everybody up and whatnot. And also, of course, women can enjoy that as well. But that that there's a whole there's a whole argument, there's a whole argument there.
1: can that be made, and 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 you can. We can never really be right because no, I can't, just I can't a Tarantino right now in front of me. No, you I know? can't.
0: And I mean, I you know, I would really want some female in, input into which, sure. the ways in which they watch film. The way in which I would also like to discuss one day the way in which um, just society in general, like, lets men and women watch two different kinds of movies. You know, there's that perception. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like you know. When when we're young and when we're growing up, what movies are are we watching? To, comparing to what, um, like a, a young girl watches, like what is yeah. the difference? What are they allowed to see versus what we're allowed to see? Gender so there's a difference gender there.
1: specific films. There you know, very like,
0: much is. We yeah. are. I mean, I think specifically in our generation, there was a lot of gender specificity in terms of what we were exposed to as children. Yeah, but that's a whole discussion for a different time. But the Hateful Eight, very long film. I really like it. Stephen likes it. Um, but I, yeah, I, I have to go it's back to revisit it. It's definitely in the it. bottom
1: half of his film. I have to,
0: I rated it really high when I saw it, because I yeah. really was kind of, like, hyped into it at the time, but I think going back to rewatching it, it'll, it'll be lower rated for me. But not, like I said, it's not something that I hate. I know a lot no, of people put no, it, no. A, lot of people, a lot of people put it dead last
1: in their rankings. Yeah, their I writings. don't, I don't agree with that, but yeah.
0: So, now we've gotten to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, because that is his newest film, so... When Hateful Lake came out in 2015, and now it's 2019. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is once again his. He's playing very much in the same vein, I think, as Inglourious Bastards, where it's his heightened fantasy, uh, introspective version of a specific time period. This is 1969 yeah, yeah. Hollywood. And it stars Brad Pitt, um, Leonardo DiCaprio, Margot Robbie's in the film, and. There's a bunch of cameos by a lot of other actors yeah, and Kurt actresses. Russell
1: shows up for a little bit.
0: Kurt Russell's in it. Uh, they have an actor who plays Bruce Lee. I mean, they, it's a you know, really... The, the late
1: Luke Perry shows up a little Luke bit. Luke Perry
0: is in one scene. Yeah, yes, he Timothy is.
1: Oliphant.
0: Yeah, Mr. Oliphantastic is in it. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, there's a lot of cameos by people playing um, the Manson family. Um, there's a lot, like Harley Quinn Smith is in there. Um... But, um, Maya Hawke is in there. I don't know why. For some reason, on IMDb, Maya Hawke has like top billing, and she's in the movie <laughs> for one scene. This is not it's a because she's in very it for popular one right scene. now. I have Stranger Things. Yeah, I think it has a whole that whole pop, pop- popularity rating thing on yeah. IMDb that happens.
1: Yeah. But yeah, I mean, um, I guess with because we don't want to go too much longer, we'll go no. non-spoiler with this.
0: Yeah, non-spoiler with it.
1: But but basically, this is a movie that I think. And, and I agree. I definitely agree that this is probably his most self indulgent film.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, it, he's very, pouring everything in this movie, I think, is very much what he you know, wa- wants. Yeah. Usually, you know, he, I mean?
1: you know, when he's very much on the nose talking about something he loves, he hides it behind fictional characters. Oh, yes. But in this movie, he set it in real life. It's a, a part of actual history and is, you know, using real people and, 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 and is de- deciding to change history on yeah. a very seminal moment uh in in film history you know not well, just he, hi- yeah. you know, not just history of of you know general history but also the the film industry this was a big moment with the manson murders um, right
0: and know. what is interesting is like people think oh it's a it's a movie about the charl uh charles manson murders and it's no. not to be honest to be frankly honest with you this is one of his most uh, reserved films when it comes to both plot as well as style. Yeah. And it's just, a like Stephen and I have talked about, it's kind of a hangout movie yeah. where not a lot of things are happening that are significant to the plot of this movie. I mean, there's an A plot line, there's a B plot line, I think there's a C plot line. And that C plot line, and I don't want to get into any specifics, is, it, is it's literally just the day in the life of some person. It's nothing that I think is is directly involved with the plot at all it's just there
1: I just think there's said, a lot of things I, this in is the most thematically driven movie
0: yes very thematically driven in the sense it's very thematically driven very very dialogue driven yeah because you get the the uh, the interaction between Brad Pitt and Leo DiCaprio I think is fantastic both of them are amazing in this movie Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio is playing someone that is kind of commenting on the, the fallen star or maybe not yeah. even really a star he was just like once he was kind of prominent and kind of well known and now he's you know doing bit roles well, it's, on it's, TV it's, shows yeah I mean, he's, I
1: mean he he encapsulates the inse- you know Tarantino wants you to see more he wants you to, he wants to take pull back the curtain and show you more of the people that are not just the people on the screen but the behind the scenes of that you know that pe- the actors can be insecure and Very how they insecure. constantly are always um fighting themselves um to be better you know cuz the you know the DiCaprio character in this film is a good actor but he holds himself back because he's so insecure
0: yeah and he's um, of course like in typical like uh you know self-hating artist yeah. uh, mode he you know he has an alcohol problem and he you know Irresponsible with certain things, but when he's on as an actor, he's fantastic, yeah and it really goes to show like it's not the talent; it's almost like the industry in and of itself kind of just like once it passes you by, you're done. Like it, it, it's gone. Yeah, there's always <laughs> a new
1: shiny toy that's around the corner, and there really is. And, and you... that's kind of what the Sharon Tate character is. It encapsulates in the movie
0: in a way, but but her her star's rising. Oh yeah yeah her yeah. star is she's very the new much no, that's rising. what i'm saying she's the new shiny toy
1: Ro- yeah. well
0: to a certain extent i think there's there's definitely a contrast of um what the leo DiCaprio character is going to and what the Sharon and what yeah. Margot Robbie's Sharon Tate character is going through when it comes to just you know one star's rising one star's dipping Well, she's and also she, she's also
1: yeah. married to Roman Polanski
0: very much so and i see a lot of people are very upset about having him in the movie um they're also very upset about not the, the movie, not directly condemning him in any way, and it's it's tough without saying anything because it's such a minimalistic movie that it's not really bombastic. It's not what the, mo- not what the movie's about, way. it's not what the movie's about, and it would almost take away from what the movie's try at least attempting to be yeah. to do something like that. Also, he has
1: such a minimalistic role in the he's, movie. he's literally he barely I don't want to say, I don't, he might know, have said a couple lines of dialogue and yeah,
0: that's he, it. He, 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 like so many parts of this movie he's just there in the background because what tarantino is really doing is trying to really immerse you into that or at least his version or fantasy version of that 19 late 1960s hollywood world you know you see there's one sequence there's just a a flash of different neon signs of different like um well-known places like the Cinerama Dome lights yeah, up yeah. or something like that, where you just see all of this things. Because he wants to immerse you into that fantasy era, into an era I think he wishes he could go back oh, yeah. to. Yeah, I mean, he Randy, wishes he went, it was
1: still like that now. He, yeah,
0: I, yeah, he wishes there was. I guess, I mean, there's so much to talk about when it comes to cinema history at that time. But I guess he really wants that era to to rage to read, uh, to to exist again yeah or go back to it but you know of course Hollywood is way different now things are way different now what is very interesting is that this the way in which this movie comments on stars and like we said star power but Brad Pitt in the movie is not even like an actor or anything he's a stuntman yeah which is something that still barely gets recognized today. This movie's like, this is what, 50 years later, people still barely recognizing stunt work and stunt people and their importance to to the movie and things like that. I mean, and there are so many inside references to that time period and and to that era that you kind of need to know, I think something about that era to be interested in it because like I said there's not a lot of plot in order for you to grasp onto to yeah. really for, for this movie to carry you you really have to like, you're really gonna have to invest
1: yeah. yourself in the characters you're no no have no to but re- you
0: gotta like really like care about that time period care yeah, about yeah you know what tarantino was trying to say about that time period what the fantasy of that time period is and all of those things because there's no real plot for you to you know grasp onto and lead you along yet again it's going back to what we've talked about several times this movie's not really plot driven it's dialogue driven it's situational driven and even then that's minimalistic in terms of like driving the film along i really like the film a lot from a technical aspect it's it's amazing like the cinematography, yeah, it's a very the editing film, yeah. The screenplay is fantastic. I mean, it's a really it's one of the best most well-made
1: films yeah, you have seen mean, in theaters this the year. The thing is, yeah, the thing is we can't get if we're not going to do spoilers, we can't really get deep into it and give you some of our thoughts on maybe some of the issues or maybe some of the issues that other people have had. Yeah, um, with I mean, it
0: is it is a long movie. It's it's a long one. It's got it's some. the 20. middle is
1: is a little bit, you know, fatty. Um, yeah, some
0: sequences drag on a little too long for, than others. I mean, especially when it's a movie like I said that the plot's not really carrying it. So you're like, are we gonna move to the next thing? What's going on here? Yeah. I'm waiting for something to happen. Something's not really happening. There's all of those things that are kind of factoring into you negatively. And a lot of people just don't like to sit in the movies for like two and a half hours. Yes. Also yeah. To. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's also about to do But, but you well. know,
1: but you know, and, and you know, seeing the movie a couple more times it, it would be could change my perspective or whatever. And, and I've listened to some other opinions and, and and that can factor in too. But you know, maybe maybe we'll you know, down the road, do a spotlight on this and be able to get deeper into the movie and give more of our thoughts on it. Um, but um, I think, for the most part, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I like that the movie was more thematically driven than some of his other movies because because a lot of times I think his thoughts get lost behind all the violence and and the dialogue, and, yeah, in the dialogue. And, and 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 so I I really enjoyed this different change of pace for. I'll his say movie. this: yeah. it wasn't
0: quite the movie I was expecting. Uh, when it came to the trailers and just you know overall anticipation going into it but i found myself really liking it a lot and even liking it even more the more i think about it
1: and wanting to see it again yeah i might try to go see it again maybe here soon um but it should be in theaters for a little bit so oh i think Um, it will be But I think that this is a good stopping point. We'd love to know what you guys think of, of course, Tarantino's uh, career. A lot of fans out there. If you don't like him, let us know. We want to hear about it. Um, Let us know what you think about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, We'd like to hear your thoughts on that. But uh, that's going to end us on this episode of the Cinema Discovery Project. Andrew, where can you be found? You can find me on Twitter at Cabzilla06, as well as my YouTube channel, Cabzilla Productions. And you can find me on Facebook, Stephen Billings. You can find the audio for this podcast on Podbean or Apple uh, Podcasts. And that will be it for this episode. Thank you for listening. And hey, keep on watching them movies. I know I will.